I really feel like I've been more balanced than ever in my life, more time off following things that are fun for me, and yet the business is also growing faster than ever. So Ron and I have lived both versions and now feel like we're living what we call the sustainable edge where balance leads to growth and growth leads to balance. That's Scott Ford, co-author of The Sustainable Edge, 15 minutes a week to a richer entrepreneurial life. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Scott tells Joe and Big Al how he and his co-author Ron Carson achieved faster business growth and a better work-life balance on The Sustainable Edge. Can you avoid state taxes in retirement by getting a P.O. box in a no-state tax state? The fellas answer that one, and Big Al lists 10 timeless financial tips and the four documents you'll want for a solid estate plan. Now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Thank you for tuning in. Got a great show lined up. Well, I don't know how great it's going to be, but we'll figure it out as we go. Big Al is running a little bit late, so... I'm going to switch it up a little bit and um, get to the email bag. I found this interesting. I got this email uh, from an individual, and he was talking about a Roth IRA and a Roth IRA conversion. And he goes, how does the five-year holding rule of Roth assets apply to real estate gains? So here's the question. He goes, if a Roth account is over five years old and a real estate asset is transferred into the existing Roth IRA with the appropriate taxes paid upon transfer. And then in four years, the asset is sold for a 20% profit. Does this profit need to stay in the Roth for five more years in order to be taken out tax-free? Or does the five-year distribution rule start on the date of the initial transfer? So let's talk about a few different things because here's a whole bag full of goodies there. Roth IRAs, first of all, is an after-tax contribution. All earnings will grow tax-free if it's a qualified distribution. And what that means is this. First of all, if it is a contribution, it's first in, first out, FIFO tax treatment. So you can take the dollars out at any point. There is no taxes due. So if I put $5,000 in today, two years down the road, I need to take those $5,000 out. No problem. No matter what age you are. Right? There's no 59 and a half rule when it comes to Roth IRA contributions. The earnings, however, need to season inside the Roth IRA for five years or until you turn 59 and a half. So let's say I put, um, I'm 40 years old, I put $5,000 in, it grows to $10,000 and now I'm 45. Well, I could take the $5,000 contribution out but the $5,000 earnings that the $5,000 grew to, to $10,000, I could not touch those dollars tax-free until I turned 59 and a half. So the 59 and a half rule applies to earnings, but not on contributions. What this gentleman is asking is to say, hey, you know what, I have some real estate that I transferred into a Roth IRA. So he had an existing, probably self-directed IRA that he had real estate inside that self-directed IRA. He converted that money into a Roth IRA. Now, a conversion and a contribution are two different things. A contribution is an after-tax, you pay, you know, you have cash in your checking account, you just place the money into the Roth IRA. You let the money season, uh, until you're 59 and a half or five years, whichever's later. 
So if I don't start a Roth IRA until I'm 65, I have access to the principal again, but I do not have access to the earnings for five years. So in that example, if I'm 65 years old, I make a contribution, I have access total to the uh, contributions, but do not have access to the earnings until five years later if I've never established a Roth IRA before. A conversion has a five-year clock with every conversion that you do. So if you do a Roth IRA conversion, you've never established a Roth before, and you're under 59 and a half, right? Well, you can't have access to any of those dollars for five years. And each conversion has its own five-year clock. Now, if you already have a Roth IRA that you've established five years ago, then you convert dollars into that Roth IRA. Now, if you're under 59 and a half, then you have the five-year clock on the conversion, even though you've already had one established because a conversion, if you're under 59 and a half, has different rules. The reason for that is they do not want you to bypass the 10% penalty. Because here's what happened before when they first established Roth IRAs is that people would do a Roth IRA conversion, right? I'm 40 years old. I do a Roth IRA conversion of 50,000 bucks. I do not have to pay a 10% penalty, but I do have to pay the tax on that $50,000 conversion. And then the next year, I just take the $50,000 out. There's no 10% penalty, right? So they said, no, we can't do that. That's a bypass of the 10% penalty. So each conversion now has its own five-year clock. So it all depends on age. So are you under 59 and a half or over 59 and a half in it to determine the five-year clock on conversions? So I'm just going to assume that this gentleman is over 59 and a half. He's already had a Roth IRA established, he said, for five years. He converted some real estate inside the existing Roth IRA. And then four years later, the real estate transaction grew 20%. Does he have to wait another five years to take that 20% gain out or sell the property and, and, and get the gain out? The answer is no. The five-year clock starts with the first dollar that hits your first Roth IRA. And as long as you're over 59 and a half and it's been five years since you started the Roth IRA, then you're good to go. So there's a lot of confusion, and I probably confused the heck out of most of you, but just know that when you are doing Roth IRA conversions, you have a five-year clock, a wait list, if you will, um, if you're under 59 and a half for each conversion. And just think of it this way, is that they're trying to you know, avoid people escaping the 10% penalty. On a contribution, the five-year clock starts again with the first dollar that hits any first Roth IRA. But you can't take any of the earnings out until you're over 59 and a half, but you have full access to the contributions at any time. Remember, Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. Hey, Southern California, are you on a smooth, well-paved road to retirement, armed with a good roadmap and clear directions? Join one of our certified financial planners for a free lunch and learn in San Diego or Orange County and learn how to pave your road to retirement. Visit purefinancial.com lunch to register for one of these free events, lunch included. Learn about investing for your future, generating retirement income, retirement plan distributions, and how to minimize your income taxes. 
get on a good road to retirement. Visit purefinancial.com slash lunch to register for a free lunch and learn in San Diego, Brea, or Irvine. That's purefinancial.com slash lunch. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Alan Klopine hanging out today. Alan, it's that time again. Yes, it is. And we gave up Scott Ford on today. Yeah, the sustainable edge. Yes. And uh, he's going to tell us how to be better entrepreneurs. I hope so. Yeah, because I'm we, awful. We need help. <laughs> no, seriously. Because right, we had Scott on, but we called him early. We apologize for being late. This show's just <laughs> awful. So, Scott, Nothing's thank, going right. thank you for being patient uh, with uh, us, a couple of knuckleheads here. No worries. I, I think I might fit right in. So we're all good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Scott, you wrote this book, uh, The Sustainable Edge, and you wrote that with uh, Mr. Ron Carson. Um, I know Ron. Uh, Ron's uh, uh, a great guy, and, and, and I'm glad that uh, we were able to get you on. Yeah, thanks. I did. Yeah, Ron's a partner of mine. known Ron since 2001, so longtime partners and friends, and was excited to write the book with him. And Hopefully, share what uh, we've learned along the way. At least a few things. Yeah. Well, tell us what's what's the genesis behind the book, and um, you know what made you write it, and what are what are some of the things that our listeners can kind of take from it. Well, the book was written because both Ron and I have lived both versions of this, and that is at least early on in my career. So I speak for myself here. And it's early on; it was just all about making a living, right? You start out in business, and you're just scratching and clawing to keep your head above water and get it done, and unfortunately, when you do that, a lot of times you end up a bit out of balance. And so my example is I had come up with uh, kind of balanced life philosophy or not kind of, I came up with a balanced life philosophy and named the company after that. And for me, it's been spiritual, family, health, career, philanthropy, and finances. And we manage money to be that cornerstone in that financial pillar to help our clients focus on the other areas. That said, if you were to look at my calendar in the early years, yeah, I was kidding myself. Though they were valuable to me, they really weren't my priorities because at the end of the day, what's on your calendar are your priorities. And my calendar was pretty much work. I flipped that and kids were young and I was working more towards 30 hours and I was dropping them off to school, was the one picking them up, didn't miss any other games and activities. And I'm proud of that. However, business would slow down a bit on growth. And so since then, I would call it about since 2009, I really feel like I've been more balanced than ever in my life, more time off following things that are fun for me, and yet the business is also growing faster than ever. So Ron and I have lived both versions and now feel like we're living what we call the sustainable edge where balance leads to growth and growth leads to balance, and we wanted to share that. How the heck do you do that? Because I've been working... <laughs> 80 hours a week He's, for the uh, last 10 years. Joe is, is Joe is the earlier version of you, Scott. <laughs> well, oh, let, let's say there's hope. <laughs> so this is my little this, private session. Yeah, I'll just be quiet and you can get a little counseling. <laughs> because, all right, I think this is where maybe um, small business owners um, – have a problem is 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 giving things up and trying to delegate certain activities where you know you can do them better, um, or you're you you might be a little bit nervous that the the quality of what your you know your company's doing might go down. So, I mean, I, I know those are my fears. Yes, that's not unusual. Certainly, I had those as well. I think we all do. So, 
I'll, I'll take I'll take a stab at it, and then we can continue the dialogue, and I'll send you a bill for this. By the way. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, any amount you want, Scott. <laughs> yeah, Big Al's paying for it. <laughs> I, my my partner needs help, <laughs> but then you can then you can counsel me. I could use some help too. No worries. We got. I think I have time. So let's give yeah. it. Let, let's give it a shot. So basically, here's here's one of the things that's worked for me. So for I mentioned right my areas that are most important to me. So taking time to get clear on those areas certainly is the starting point. So we actually put together a, a one-page document called the IQ Grower. So in our case, the IQ stands for Implementation Quotient. And you can get it on our website, and it's a free download PDF. You can get to it, uh, both of you and your listeners. And it really starts with what are your values. We start with six. It doesn't have to be six. And I've already shared what mine are. But then that flows down to what are the lifetime goals in those core areas that, of life that are most important to you? And then this quarter, what's out of balance? Because we talk about balance in life. It's, you're never completely in balance. It's just recognizing where you're out of balance. And that's what this tool is designed to do. So you can spend some time focusing on that. So for me, I mentioned the six pillars. Well, one of the things I, I'm focusing on this quarter is health. And I don't feel unhealthy per se, but I just haven't focused on it as far as doctor visits. So I went with my wife and we did a full, you know, in-depth uh, blood draw and sent it off to, to have all kinds of tests run just for data. And that, that's how I do it. And then the left side of that form, once we determine what's the most important area we need to focus on this quarter, we then get it on our calendar. And so we start looking at What's our day look like? So let me give an example. One of the things on the left side of the, the uh, form we'll share is what Ron and I call the six most important. What are the six most important things I need to get done tomorrow? And that's been really valuable because it helps us prioritize. But don't miss my comment earlier. I'm starting with what I value most, right? My six things. So when I'm pulling my six most each day, I'm looking at my six most valuable things that helps me integrate my day with family, with some spiritual things, with some health. It's not every day, but it keeps the week really balanced out and in check. So hopefully that form will be helpful. That would be a good starting point would be that IQ grower process one pager. Right. So you, as you start with, the, uh, with your values and then you kind of think about what are the most important things to get done that day. And that's, that's probably a really good way to say that because what tends to happen, I mean, you may intuitively know what those things are, but then you get, life gets in the way, you get distracted and you get to the end of the day and you realize, gosh, I only worked on one of them. So it sounds like if you take the time to kind of schedule this out and actually make sure you get those things done, then that's going to help you towards productivity and getting, getting towards, your, towards your core values, I, I think is what I heard. 100%. You nailed it. That's it. And it, what's important, I think what I like about the one pager, just looking at all the other versions of things that are out there, is we're, where we live with technology in the day and age we, we live in, things change so much. So just getting real clear on what you value most, as you said, core values. Right. On. Then, as Jim Collins would say, your BHAG, right? Your big, hairy, audacious goal in those six areas. So you're looking for the future, 25 years out, 20 years out, but a long time out. Where do you want to be in these areas? And then let's just break it down, looking at quarterly where we need to focus. And tomorrow, what are the six things that I can do towards that? Because the middle changes so much, right? So, so that's what makes sense to me, and that's what so, has been working so well. 
And then how, of course, now that you're going to be doing things, some of the six things are going to be things that are not related to your business. How does that ultimately circle back and help your business grow? Or, or does it just grow at a slower pace? Or what, what's been your experience? Not at all, which is really what the book's about. We're, both Ron and I's businesses are growing faster than they ever have, yet we definitely have more time off, more balance, and other things. So let me give you a couple examples. So one would be, so six most certainly is not always business. Some days it is, but most days they're not. I most always try to schedule workout time. That's, that's always one of my six most. I have a morning routine I go through, extremely important for me to set the tone of the day. One of the things that I think entrepreneurs and CEOs that we struggle with, so if I had one takeaway I wanted to give to CEOs and entrepreneurs, it's space and margin. And we got to schedule that in our day, whether it's a walk in the woods, whether it's a walk wherever you're at at your work. If you meditate, some form of space and margin where we can let our subconscious go to work, because really, you know, what's the job of, of companies? To me, the job of companies, everyone will say make a profit. Really, the, the job of companies today, I think, is to make clients' lives easier. Well, then what's the job of the CEO? I think our job is to make our team's life easier. So it's tough to do that if you're just running on this treadmill. So having time for space and margin where you can have creative time, thinking, planning time, that is the biggest missing element in my mind. I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs that I've read about that have been successful, they get up early in the morning and they have these routines. Is that something you would recommend as well? It is. That's exactly what I do. Is uh, in, I guess early is relative. I think Ron's early is 3.30. Mine's not so much, but typically 5.30 to 6. So that's early for me. And I just pretty much automatically wake up at that time anyway. And I start my morning routine. It just sets the day. It gives me I've already, the night before, written down my six most important, so I slept on that. And then part of my morning routine is really, I have a meditation practice, I have a workout practice, and I visualize what my day is going to look like. And really, the six is not key to me. It, some days it's three. In fact, a lot of days it's three most important, and sometimes it's only two. That doesn't really matter. I think what matters is priority and really going to work and spending some time on really what is the most important thing to accomplish. And you know what? There's actually research done on that. Uh, there, there, there's another book that was written not that long ago on this very subject, talking about Darwin and some other creatives, how they were looked at as slackers, yet because they took naps and they may only have worked four hours a day, but that four hours was really deliberate practice in their craft and then they had a lot of rejuvenation time where it helped with their thinking and their planning, and it helped with their really recharging their batteries. Right. So that's, I guess that's where it comes to the balance. If you're balanced in other areas of your life, it makes your work time that much more productive and, and focused. And I guess that's, that's where the growth comes from. Yes, 100%. It does. Uh, and again, it, it seems counterintuitive, right? But... What happens if you think about it? Are we more productive if we're putting in the 12-hour days that we, and, and our batteries are draining and drained? I would argue no, right? You would be more productive with the 
focus time of, let's say, four hours or three hours and taking some time off and recharging your batteries, then you are, you, there, there's a law of diminishing returns would be what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and I would suspect these concepts, it's not just for entrepreneurs and CEOs. This could be applied to virtually anybody. Agreed, 100%. My, it's, we, I'm just, feel, I am an entrepreneur and business owner, so feel born to serve them, but you're exactly right. This concept will work for anybody. You know, if you relate that, let's say, to retirement planning, because we're all advisors, I, I think just <clears throat> the lack of planning, um, you know, in any aspect of our lives um, is, is, you know, it's, it's, you know, people should be planning a lot more than they are. Uh, but well, just people, this, people plan their vacations more than their retirement. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, if they would just write it down to say, hey, I would like to retire, you know, just writing things down and then holding yourself accountable to that. Because once you write it down, then you're more apt to probably, you know, act upon that goal, whatever it is. If it's something that you're doing in, um, in your business, if it's something that you have to do at work every day or in your other life, too, such as retirement, to say, you know what, I want to retire at this date. This is the goal. I need to save X and then try to work to that and making sure that you remind yourself and talk to yourself to say, I mean, or, or, or most people's retirement is probably pretty important to them, but they don't take the time to write it down. Yeah, you're spot on. In fact, what you said as far as planning vacations, that's exactly right. We'll spend so much time planning vacations or planning to buy a car, yet how much time are we really planning for retirement and what's more important and what's going to have the bigger impact? So our priorities tend to get out of whack. I will add to the earlier comment, and that is, yes, this is applicable to everyone. In some ways, it is a little easier for entrepreneurs and business owners just because we can control our hours slightly easier, though that is changing, right? With technology, a lot of people can work remotely and are having better control of their hours. So that's getting easier for all of us as well. Hey, Scott, any last uh, parting words of wisdom for our audience? You know, number one, hopefully you couldn't hear the dog barking in the background. He's a big boy, so I was hoping you couldn't. But uh, No, we definitely heard it. <laughs> definitely heard the dog. <laughs> but we liked it. <laughs> Sorry about that. He's a 150-pound mastiff, and so normally it's quiet up here in my office. Uh, so if From Fridays, they work from home, so that's what's happened. And then I guess the UPS guy, he wasn't so happy with it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's doing his job, though, right? Well, he is. And I guess parting words of wisdom is uh, don't – don't let my dog get a hold of you. He's a big boy. Uh, the, the book is called The Sustainable Edge. Hey, where can they find that book, Scott? Yeah, you can go Amazon, of course. Our website is thesustainableedge.com. You can also download that PDF, the IQ Grower Process, which I would recommend everyone do on the thesustainableedge.com. Thesustainableedge.com. That's Scott Ford, folks. we got to take a break. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. After you achieve the perfect work-life balance, stress test your portfolio and make sure you're retirement ready. Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and click Free Assessment to meet with one of our certified financial planners. How much money will you need in retirement? How much income can you get from your portfolio? What social security strategies are available to you? Make sure your retirement strategy is aligned with your retirement goals. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner. Just click Free Assessment at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, 10 timeless financial tips. This is kind of more like, I don't know, kind of written almost like the gospel or the Ten Commandments. Just one, one sentence each, right? So... 
But they're good. They're good things. I mean, I think every single one of these is important. You're getting very spiritual. I am now as I'm getting older, <laughs> and I just uh, I just went on a very very long hike, and I actually survived the Did hike. Did you think you were going to die? Uh, no, but there was definitely uh, several spots. This is the Kalalau Trail in Kauai, where it's very dangerous. It's the most dangerous hike I've ever been on by far. <laughs> and I've been on Half Dome, and that's, a, that's nuts, that hike. But anyway, it's, uh, yeah, there's this one area called Crawler's Ledge at mile seven, where you're, uh, you're basically exposed on a cliff, and if you slip, you're dead. And it's, the trail ranges from two feet to one feet wide. <laughs> <laughs> You're holding on to the rock with one hand, trying to get a handhold. You got your hiking pole on there, trying to get you know some some foundation. So as you take the next step, your your, your center of gravity, you, you go low, you know. And and anyway, but we made it through. My son Ryan and I, it was wonderful hike, beautiful hike, perhaps the most beautiful hike I've ever done in my life. Uh, but that's a one and done. That's uh, I've done it, <laughs> and because I would say I. It's like maybe there shouldn't be a trail there. It's it's just you're hiking on cliffs the How whole time. How many people have died? I don't know, but every year several. Oh jeez. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, no thanks. And you with your tall frame. Yeah, yeah. No, you would have been. Much rather be sitting <laughs> having a cold tour's light than doing that. Anyway, we, I divest. But um, this is ten timeless financial tips from Kiplinger. Number one, wealth creation isn't a matter of what you earn, it's how much you save. No, I agree with that a thousand percent. I mean, how many times do we see uh, people that make a lot of money, they don't have a penny saved? Well, and the problem is, is that so many people are, God, they're, 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 they're so tied to the return. Yeah. Because they haven't saved enough. Yeah. And yeah. so they're taking on way too much risk. With what little savings they have. Yeah, like, and, then, and then they think that there's some magical potion out there right. that's going to get them a giant rate of return. And, you know, it's like it's an addiction to the return. And they're, they're always unhappy. And they're always moving in and out of the markets. They're always... You know, getting subpar returns just because they need this high return. No, if you would have just saved more, you could have had a more conservative. You would have ten times more wealth. Yeah, it's well, it's true, and 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 we know that from all all kinds of analysis that it's it's a, a good goal to shoot for is at least save ten percent of your earnings. Really, fifteen percent is probably a better number. In some cases, maybe more. We we've talked to some podcasters on this show that that they encourage people to save 50, 60, 70% so that you can retire when you're in your late 30s. Right. And well, it, yeah, that's the FIRE, Financial Independence right. Retire Early Movement. Right. And that, and and so if that's if that's your deal, then great. You you base and that can be done and people are doing it. But for the rest of us, right. if we, 10% is kind of a minimum, but 15% really should be the goal, I would say. Yeah. So what that means is if you make $100,000, 15% of that is 15 grand. So live off of eighty-five thousand and save fifteen. Right, simple as that. Right, easy to say, hard to do. Sometimes. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number two is your biggest barrier to be becoming rich is living like you're rich before you are. Well, is it not fake it till you make it? Right, right. Well, isn't that the Keep, secret? Keeping up with the Joneses, and you, you know. gotta just you gotta think I'm rich, believe I'm rich, and then you will be rich. Isn't no. that how it works? Well, that there is. That. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's some truth to getting your mind in order. But no, this is talking about if you're if you're spending like you're wealthy before you're wealthy, you're spending more than you're making. And I mean, and, and a lot of times you go to particularly neighborhoods of young professionals um, or maybe middle-aged professionals for that matter, uh, and they're living this lavish lifestyle and you're living next door to them going, gosh, I, I don't know how they can afford these cars and these vacations and 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 they they go to because they're broke because they're borrowing and they're they're about ready to, i mean they're one paycheck away from right. from total disaster you know the the market takes a downturn or they get fired or, or whatever something happens and and yeah that's a it, it's this related to the first one right which is um, it's not what you earn it's what you save and alongside with that is 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 live under your li- your earnings. Your lifestyle should be less than your earnings, not more, not greater than. I'm okay faking it till you make it, but not when it comes to material goods. <laughs> Got it. Third is pay yourself first. Have retirement and other savings deducted from your paycheck. If there isn't enough money left over for your bills, cut your spending. Simple as that, right? Yeah, and I think you got to <laughs> add to that, too, is... How much are you paying yourself first? I mean, I, I guess I could pay myself a couple of bucks first, right? But then that goes back to your first statement: right. is that you, you have to figure out. Let's say you're, you know, in your fifties and you want to retire in the next fifteen years, you need to figure out. All right, well, what is my lifestyle today? Do I want to maintain that lifestyle? What is going to be, you know, my fixed income sources of Social Security and pension income or whatever? And then what else do I need on top of that to provide my lifestyle? And work that number backwards to figure out exactly how much you should be saving today. Right. Right. And then then save that first then spend everything else yeah and how many instead of saying well you're right i'm paying myself first al and you know i'm, I'm saving you know three thousand dollars a year <laughs> right right yeah. may not cut it it's not gonna cut it no you have to do a little bit more than paying yourself first how much do you need to be paying yourself yeah i mean how many times you teach a lot of classes around san diego and southern california and and we uh, you'll ask people i mean a lot of people have a sense that when they retired they might need to spend a little bit less because they haven't saved enough and so they a little back of the envelope calculation you take social security maybe you got pension income maybe not maybe you got some savings and you know you do a little analysis and you, you go well okay i'll be okay if i if i spend 70 percent of what I'm normally spending right now, I can certainly do that in retirement. Right, right. I can spend. I can, I can cut my spending by thirty percent. Sure. Right? So then you, you know, then, then you ask the question: Is is well, what if you, what if you got a thirty percent reduction in your pay right now? Oh, there's no way right. I could ever manage that. Or yeah, well, could, could you save thirty percent of your income? Not a chance. Right. Right. But in retirement, you're going to live off of seventy percent. Right? Yeah. So well, no. It's the same math. It's the same math. And, uh, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, my mortgage is going to be paid. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about living expenses only. Living expenses only. Right? So, yeah, you might have a mortgage payment. You might have this and that, whatever. But your living expenses are X. And it's like, all right, well, here. Can you save 30% of that? Not a chance. Right. But, but you're going to live off of 70% of it in the future? What? Yeah. I mean, the math doesn't jive. Right. Yeah. Number four is no one ever got into trouble by borrowing too little. I like that. Right? <laughs> and no one ever got into trouble by saving too much. That's right. That's the, the corollary to that one. Okay, here's one. Uh, number five, conspicuous consumption will make you inconspicuously poor. So if you want to know what uh, conspicuous consumption is. Yeah, please. It's... <laughs> 
expenditure on or consumption of luxuries on a lavish scale in attempt to enhance one's prestige. Right? That's that's almost the same as number two. It basically is is if you're spending to try to increase your 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 status, if you will, uh, that's that's not a good way to uh, to create wealth and to be in a sound position by the time you get to retirement. So, what is it? Give me an example. What would someone do to to be in that position? Well, I know exactly what they would do. They would um, they would drive a Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Maybe they buy a five-bedroom home oh, and they only need one. Got it. Something like that. Oh, I see. Thank you. Thank you for let's, that. Let me think of what else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, good thing I live in a condo and drive a Toyota. <laughs> just, you are so lucky. But your brother, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, he's messed my up. My twin brother. But, <laughs> God, he, he looks a lot like he you, does, too. He does. It's funny he does. How, how that works. But uh, <laughs> uh, we got time for a couple right, more here. Right, right. yeah, okay. That, number six is the key to the stock market success isn't your timing of the market. It's your time in the market. The longer, the better. Agree or disagree? Yeah. That's um, investing 101. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I guess it's that that need for that return, and that holy grail investment that people are looking for because they haven't saved enough, and so they're looking for to get the best return or highest return possible with very little risk, and so they pick this investment, and then it's like, oh, it's not performing of what I thought because they're looking at past performance, yeah. thinking that it's going to continue to do what it did in the last three, four, five years, right? And then all of a sudden it goes down. They're like, damn it, I you know got in too late, so they sell that, they buy something else, you know, and they're buying high every single time because they're looking at past performance. They, and I'm not saying you can predict the future by any stretch, but you have to have a diversified portfolio across all sectors and get the t- timing um, BS totally out of the out of the picture. Yeah, which is number seven, diversify, because every asset has its day in the sun, also its day in the doghouse. Right. And, and the thing is, you never know when. And it's like, real smart people will sit around and say, well, I'm sure that this sector or this maybe emerging maybe maybe an asset class emerging markets emerging markets is going to do well and it's for the same reason you just said that because it's done well the last two or three years but everything cycles sure and sometimes emerging markets might go up for one year and then down for four sometimes it may go up for four years and it's like well which one is it and you don't know until it actually happens right. hindsight's 2020 but when you're looking forward it's it's virtually impossible right and i think that's why how we look at um, the world of the markets and investing is we act after it happens in a sense and that's rebalancing right um, if you're trying to predict what's going to happen tomorrow uh, versus being very proactive on what happened yesterday, those are two different things. Because as certain asset classes go up, you want to make sure that you keep them in balance because eventually they'll potentially go down. And so you don't want to be overweighted in a particular hot sector, even though it's counterintuitive of what most people do with their money or what they think about what they should be doing with their money, right? right. Because you're selling your, your winners and you're buying your losers. Uh, but that, that keeps you diversified. That keeps your risk parameters in check uh, versus the 
opposite of saying, hey, this has done well. I believe it's going to continue to do well. Or this asset class has not performed. So I'm going to believe that it's going to continue not to perform. So why would I want to put my money there? I, I get it with everything else in life. That's a good way of looking at things, right? If you got a buddy that, you know, that, that you're counting on, to, hey, for a ride and he doesn't show, right? You can anticipate he's probably going to do it again, right? right? But if you look at the markets, because if, if, if the markets are going down or a particular area of the market's going down, that doesn't mean that it's going to continue to go down. In most cases, it's the opposite. So, Yeah, and I think it's you can really illustrate that with just like a single company like Apple, which I think a lot of us would agree it's, it's and maybe Google. These are these are maybe the strongest companies in the world right now. Are they the best investments right now? Right. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And and you'd think, well, wait a minute. The strongest company has to be the best investment. And the reason it may not be is because it's the strongest company, it's already very expensive, right? And to make money at it, it means that you need to it needs to go up in value and keep paying big dividends. Well, neither Apple or Google pay very gigantic dividends, so you're counting on capital appreciation. If the stock is already expensive when you got into it, you're banking on some great things to happen in addition to that, which may or may not happen. And it's you see the same thing with uh, people that pick. They, they say, "Well, I'm going to invest in Germany this year or Austria or whatever." And it's like, well, it's like certain countries have stronger companies than others, but they're already priced higher. Right. So in a lot of cases, if you if you end up looking at companies in country. Some of the worst com- countries uh, outperform because they're cheap, right? Right. right. So, yeah. So you, it's you, you, you gotta. The human mind is not equipped to invest. I'll leave it at that. Ten timeless tips from Kiplinger. Uh, next one is when others are selling investments, it's usually a good time to buy. The foundations of great fortunes are laid in bear markets, not bull markets. Isn't that the truth? But we're freaked out. We, we can't. We're paralyzed. There's no way, right? <laughs> it's like uh, 2008. I mean, forget about it. I'm not going to invest. Right? It's, it's right. scary times. I'm going to wait till the market goes up. That's when I want to get in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How about this one, Jared? See if you agree with this. Money cannot buy happiness, but it can make unhappiness easier to bear. Anyone that says money can't buy happiness doesn't have money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that goes against the Beatles song. What, can't buy me love? Yeah. (laughs) You can't buy me love. Sure you can, in some areas of the country. (laughs) I suppose, depending on what kind of love you are talking about. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, I get. I think I agree with that. I mean, uh, <laughs> money money is not the root of happiness, but. It but what does. did that what What did that survey say? It's like once you reach a certain level of wealth, or certain income. Yeah, it wasn't does. it? Or was it dollars? Or was it income? I don't, I don't remember. But but the conclusion was it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it was like it plateaued. It plateaued. You're happy. I think it was seventy. It was seventy five thousand. I remember now. Seventy on average. Right. Once you hit seventy five thousand dollars of income, you're you're not any happier if you make one fifty. That's kind of sad. But if you make less than seventy-five, you're kind of miserable because you can't even afford rent and food. I guess. <laughs> anyway, that's what it said. I'm oversimplifying since I don't have it with me. 
But I think, uh, Joe, to, let's get philosophical. If you have, if you have money, it it just it just helps you with yes. the, some of the issues of life. <laughs> you can right? help pay the bills. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll move on. Ah, this is the last one. All right, number ten. Thank God. Sharing the wealth with others is more fun than spending it on yourself. Agree or disagree? <laughs> I don't know. I got a Jaguar in a five-bedroom house, and it's just me. <laughs> so you haven't tried the other one yet? <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, I believe in that statement. I believe in that statement a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think giving is... is um, I, a lot of people should try it. <laughs> see how it feels. <laughs> see how it feels. But then they're getting rid of their money, and then they're not going to be happy. <laughs> right, right. Uh, no, generosity, um, it, you, know, you and I know this very, very well with uh, a lot of our clients, is that the more they give, the happier they Yeah, there, there's no question. And now that I'm older, and I have been older than you for ever. <laughs> yeah, right. Imagine that. That was weird how you just kind of catapulted yourself. And now that I turned 60 recently... Um, Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think uh, I think when you're giving back, whether it's money or time, that truly is when you're happiest. Now you have to have, have to have a certain amount of money so that you're not sad. Sure, right, right. yeah. It's <laughs> but, just that balancing. But once once you've got that level, whatever that is for you, I think giving back time and money, I think that is an obvious key to happiness. Well, now you and I both know individuals that have millions that will blow through their millions and are miserable. Yes, we do. And we know people that have a couple of bucks and they're the happiest people that you'll ever want to be with. You bet. And they're giving like crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um, so, yeah. And they've, they've studied this list and they've followed it and there you go. Yeah, they're big advocates of Big Al's list. That's right. For even more useful information, visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com to access white papers, articles, webinars, and over 400 video clips on tax planning, investing, retirement planning, social security, estate planning, small business strategies, and much more. It's a veritable treasure trove of information just waiting for you at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. If you need more help, you can always email us at info at purefinancial.com or just pick up the phone and give us a call, 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257. I got something I want to talk about, Joe. Okay. I think this is important for some of our listeners, and that's uh, state taxes. Because we live in California, which is one of the highest tax rates in the nation. And, and honestly, many of us that live here want to stay here through retirement, probably the majority, but not all. And, and there are legitimate reasons to move to other states. I mean, typically it's because you enjoy, like maybe you enjoy the Pacific Northwest, so you want to move to Washington, or maybe you like the the tropical places like Hawaii or Florida, but sure. there's taxes to be considered. And I think, in my view, this isn't the main reason you would move, but it's good to know what different tax rates Yeah, are. but here's the deal. Most people say they move for tax reasons, and they don't. Right. Well, true. That, that's, And I'll get into that, too. Okay. But I think I want to start with the basics, first of all, which California, the highest tax rate is 13.3%. That's when you make over a million dollars of income. So not all of us are in that bracket, but that's the highest bracket. Arizona, our, our neighbor uh, to the east. Uh, California is higher than um, New York? Uh, it's uh, I don't have New York right here. I think it's I think it's either higher. I mean, they're like neck and neck. I'm not sure which is higher. What do you got? A list of the top? I just did Western states. I, I figured. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and this isn't a list of this is this is news you can use type of stuff <laughs> or not use if or, I want to. Move yeah, to you New York. you may not be interested, but our <laughs> listeners are riveted. Yes, they are. They're like Anderson, shut up. Arizona uh, is four point five percent, four point five four percent. That's the highest rate. Uh, Oregon nine point nine percent. Washington State is zero. There is no state tax. Nevada zero. There is no state tax. And Hawaii, where I like to go, the highest state tax is 8.25%. But they get their taxes somehow. Well, they do. They, they do. And, and that's kind of what I want to get into because um, like, like there, there's actually a bunch of states that don't have any taxes. Arizona being one, Florida another. I mentioned Nevada and Washington. Well, Arizona is 4.5. 4.5. South Dakota is a tax-free state. Texas, Wyoming, to name a few. But like Washington, for example, people move to Washington. There's no state taxes. Pacific Northwest, beautiful weather. Now, you have to like gray weather and clouds and all that sort of thing. But what they don't realize is Washington State has very high gas taxes. And you're right. Your comment is right. they got to get their taxes somehow. Texas, we all know what that is. The Texas, the property taxes are about triple what they are here. So they're getting their more of their revenue from from uh, from property taxes. Yeah, but taxes. Pro- property values are they're lower. Yes. Yeah. Right? Right. I right. mean, yeah. you buy an average house in California, I don't know, Southern California is what? 500 grand? Yeah, I think that's You pay the, 1% on 500 yeah. versus 3% on of, t- of 100. 100. Yeah, you're still doing better. Still. You are right about that. But I think what I wanted to get into, Joe, was where you were going with your comment, which, which was how many people ask us about, well, I want to stay in California, but what if I just get a P.O. box or a condo in, in Nevada? Can, does that count for residency? And the, the problem with that is uh, you've got to establish what's called domicile. So this is basically the place that you intend to remain indefinitely or whenever you're away where you come back to. So because sometimes people live in multiple homes. Maybe they have a California home, a Nevada home, and a Washington home, whatever it may be. So it's it typically it's the state that you will, you will spend at least 183 days there, which is... Which is um, you know, more than half a year. So you could potentially be living in two different states, but it's that state that you're spending the majority of the time is the one that creates domicile. And really to get the domicile, you kind of have to change everything, like your right. driver's license, your register of vote, you got your library card, joining churches or clubs, all, all that. Library card. It's right here in this article. <laughs> Do you have one? <laughs> I haven't had a library card since like the... Eight, eight. Long time ago, 80s. Well, you need one. You're missing out on all the great literature. So I'm going to (laughs) move to Nevada. It'll be like, damn it! <laughs> it failed. <laughs> it failed. Didn't, didn't have a library Give my card. library card. They are going to tax me to death. The franchise tax board. Taxes, penalties, late payment, <laughs> interest. <laughs> oh, it's like, so that's, that's my first stop. That's why. That's why I'm telling you the instructions. <laughs> Anyway, but then there's all this confusion, right? It's like, well, all right, so I'm 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 living in t- I got two homes, one in California, one in Nevada. So that's the common thing, right? So I'm going to spend 184 days in Nevada and 182 days whatever in California. And that theoretically does work. It's just that most people don't really do it. They say they do it, right? Sure. And, and that's the problem. 
So, and then you think, well, how would anyone ever know? And well, first of all, they don't know unless they audit you. But it turns out Nevada and California are in communication with each other on a lot of stuff. <laughs> and so California Franchise Tax Board in particular is pretty savvy on people that are trying to pretend that they're not California residences by living in another state. And how do they know that? Well, they can see you have property in California, and, and there's, there's other ways that they can sort of trace that you have California roots. So they audit you, and they'll say, all right, well, show me show me your um, six months in a day of grocery bills in Nevada, and you've only been there for four days. Right. Right. You're <laughs> kind of stuck, right? <laughs> or... Show me your, you know, you, you, I suppose your cable bill would be the same. That that wouldn't necessarily matter, but your utility bill. So in California, you got a four hundred dollar utility bill every month. In Nevada, it's thirty nine dollars to keep the For appliances the going. <laughs> your California home is a three million dollar home with an ocean view. Your Nevada home is a one bedroom condo right. that costs you one hundred four thousand dollars. Right, and the, the, and the views your, of Shell and gas the, station. <laughs> But it does have a 7-Eleven nearby. <laughs> so that's, honestly, that's, the, and they're pretty good about catching you. And when they catch you, the Franchise Tax Board can go back four years. And so they, they restate. Four instead of three? Yeah, four instead of three. Unlike the, the feds, the IRS can only go back three years. Huh. So they go back to four years and they, they reassess for California income. They have they do what's called substantial underpayment penalties, which are like 25% penalties. Then they charge you late payment and interest on top of that. It's, it's not the path that you want to go down. And sometimes some of these internet sites will say, you know, you send send fifty dollars a month for your PO box, and we'll make it look like you're a Nevada resident. It doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't we're, work. We're, we're, uh, there's internet sites that are doing that. There are shame because I get asked by by people. <laughs> How about this? This one looks really reputable. <laughs> it's fraud. <laughs> But then, but then, the, but because of this rule about the 183 days, there's all this confusion on. So I have to spend 183 days in Nevada before I'm a Nevada resident. No, actually, one day if you truly move. It's it's there's a difference between where your domicile is. So if you actually move, you're a Nevada resident from that day on, as long as you do all the stuff correctly and then maintain the 183 days a year after that, right? But if you've got two homes, then it's a little bit different. And if you haven't reestablished your domicile, then that's where there's a problem. So so understand there's two different rules. It's it's If you actually do move to a place, you become a resident of that state immediately. The way you typically prove it is you have a moving bill showing your, your um, belongings. Uh, actually, there's a date on it <laughs> as to when you move. Usually it says where you moved to right on on that receipt, so that's a pretty good one. It's also the date you can start showing consistent grocery bills and pharmacy bills, or you know whatever it may be, entertainment, you know whatever you like to do. That's going to start showing up on your on your ATM card or your credit card or however you want to want to spend money. But yeah, that's that is a question we get all the time, Joe. Which is uh, which is what if I just pretend? Right. I'm a Nevada resident, and I'm here to tell you that's not a very good idea. And I've even heard of cases where people did everything right. They moved to Nevada. I mean, legitimate. They did all the stuff right, and then they had a big stock 
transaction. Like maybe they had a company, and maybe they had a company stock that they that they sold out to a public company, and eventually then they sold the public company. They waited till they were a Nevada resident to so sell. That, to sell, and and it actually it legitimately could be Nevada income if they're a Nevada resident. Okay, and California has no claim to it, but then they moved back before the four-year period, and the franchise tax board came in and said, "Well, you weren't a Nevada resident." And you say, "Yes, I was. Look, I did the registrar of voters. I got the library card. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm set. I went to the, the library. I, look at my card. I checked out books. <laughs> I got all my receipts. Look at my grocery bills. I was a Nevada resident. And then they'll say, "No, your intent was to come back to California, so therefore you went for tax reasons, so it does not count." And wow. And franchise tax board can win that. Even if you, you rented books. Even if you rented <laughs> books. <laughs> Shame. What a shame. Oh, boy. Speaking of taxes, we're told that the biggest federal tax cut ever is getting closer, but the president and the GOP remain divided on a number of key policy questions. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the white paper, Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP, to find out. Are your tax strategies at risk? Get year-end tax planning tips that can help you stay on track in the midst of uncertainty. Download the Tax Reform white paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. I actually missed the first part of the show. We had a kind of a weird schedule conflicts today. Joe's missing the end, but that's okay. You still got me. We're going to, um, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about estate planning, mainly just because there's there's just an awful lot of confusion on what should you do uh, when it comes to your estate plan. And there's even con- uh, confusion about the term, because a lot of times when people hear estate plan or estate planning, they're getting it confused with estate tax planning, which is something completely different. Estate tax planning is when you have an estate right now over uh, about $5.5 million, or if you're married, it's about $11 million. If you have a state over those amounts, then uh, your estate, when you pass away, is going to have to pay estate taxes and to the tune of 40% of everything that's over that amount. And so there's all kinds of advanced estate planning. There's family limited partnerships. There's grant or retained annuity trust. There's charitable remainder trust, charitable lead trust, and the like. Those are things that you would do if you're in that situation. But for most of us, that doesn't necessarily apply. Estate planning, on the other hand, is applies to virtually everybody. That's that's the documents that you need when you pass away uh, as to what's going to happen with your assets. And it's it's actually more than that. It's certain documents that you need while you're living, based upon if you're incapacitated or you there's medical issues and you're unconscious and can't be consulted. So I basically I want to start with what are the components of an estate plan? What are the things that you really need to have? And the first one is a will. A will is simply a document that uh, it's generally in a legal format, but even if you handwrite it, that's that's certainly better than nothing. But usually it's a legal document that indicates where your assets are going to go, what beneficiaries. Oftentimes it's your kids. If you don't have kids, maybe it's your nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters. Friends, whatever it may be, it's it's designating where your assets will will go. That's of course a key one because if you don't have at least a will, then uh, what happens is your assets when you pass away get divvied up in accordance to whatever state law is. 
Second document you need is called a financial power of attorney, and that is uh, gives somebody else power to handle your uh, your assets, uh, pay your bills, make investments. Should you become incapacitated if you're disabled and and or not able to do that, and this happens sometimes. So either husband or wife will uh, will be incapacitated and the assets are in an IRA. Say husband's incapacitated, assets are in his IRA, and the wife cannot uh, has no access to those assets because it's an individual retirement account without this financial power of attorney. Sometimes you may want to have a, a, a trusted son or trusted friend, uh, and there's there's all kinds of uh, ways to do this. You can have um, a, a, a general a financial power of attorney that gives rights to do virtually anything with regards to your estate, or it could be a specific uh, a power of attorney, which means like maybe there's a real estate transaction that you want your son to be the one making the decision on, whatever it may be. But that's an important document. The medical powers of attorney are really important too, because that's um, the HIPAA laws require certain those those documents to be uh, filed and valid, so that the doctors then can talk to your spouse and other family members, depending upon who's on those documents. The fourth thing, which is not necessarily a requirement, but most financial planners, myself included, highly recommend is a living trust. And a living trust is, is it's kind of the next level above a will, if you will. A living trust is, a, it's kind of a living, breathing document that, uh, that designates where your assets go to when you pass away. The, the primary difference between the living trust and the will is the living trust allows the executor, you would designate an executor, allows the executor to distribute your, your assets in accordance with the trust without having to use the court system. Now, the court system, uh, otherwise known as probate, is what happens with your will. You pass away with a will, and it's above certain dollar amounts. I don't have those those figures right in front of me. It's like 150000 bucks. I, I can't remember exactly. But at certain asset levels, if your non-retirement assets are above those and you have a will, your heirs, your, your um, executor is going to have to go to court, and that's probate court. Sometimes that's a matter of months. Sometimes that can take years uh, for assets to be settled. The living trust allows the executor to distribute assets immediately. And the will can do a lot of things. I mean, the living trust can do a lot of things that the will cannot. For example, a will can say, you know what, I want I want half the assets to go to kid number one and half the assets to go to kid number two, but I don't want that to happen until age 25 or 30 or 40, or maybe half of the assets go to the child at age 30, the other half doesn't happen until 40, and maybe before age 40, those assets can be spent for for education and, and health, but maybe that's it. You specify in the will. You could also specify what charities you could put various conditions on. And a lot of times when it comes to a will, uh, nowadays a, a, lot of, a lot of attorneys are recommending, which I think is a great idea, by the way, is you have the, the living trust becomes a trust that, that stays around after you pass away. The assets stay in the trust. If you have more than one kid, it becomes two subtrusts, so each kid has their own subtrust. They have full access to the assets in accordance with how you've designated it, based upon whatever restrictions you have set up. But now, even though they have full access to the assets, they don't actually own the assets. And so, 
if they have a lawsuit, if they get divorced or whatever, the other party has no claim to those assets because they don't actually own the assets. Your kids would have the right to receive the income, even the principal, uh, potentially, but they wouldn't actually own the assets. So that would be something that you might want to consider. And when you have a living trust, you still need a will. It's called a pour-over will, and the pour-over will is simply there if you forget to put assets inside your trust. Like sometimes you own a home, and you actually have to go down to the county, and you have to change the title from your name or you and your spouse's name to the name of the trust. If you forget to do that, it didn't get funded into the trust, and so therefore that asset may still have to go to probate. And I would say, honestly, I'm not an estate planning attorney, but that's one of the biggest mistakes that I have seen happen, is people spend all this time and money to set up a living trust. Everything is really good well thought out, but they forget to put the assets in the trust. They forget to fund the trust. And and so that would be something that you want to check. If you have a living trust and you're not sure if your assets are in there, take a look at your investment statements, your non-retirement investment statements. They should be in the name of the trust, not your name. Take a look at your property tax bill. That should be in the name of the trust, not your name. If it's in your name, it's actually not even in the trust. So you want to make that change. It's very easy to do. You go down to your your um, custodian for your investment account or your bank, you make that change. Or you file a form with the county. Uh, I'm, we're in San Diego. This would be the county of San Diego. Uh, they keep track of all this for you. Very simple to do. It's a mistake that's made often and it kind of negates the whole thing. So anyway, that's um, probably six minutes or less on estate planning, things that you really need to know. So that's all the time we have for today. Appreciate you guys listening. And this is Your Money, Your Wealth. Bye-bye. So to recap today's show, before you make any money moves in your Roth IRA, make sure you know the difference between the rules for contributions versus conversions. Being domiciled in a no-state-tax state for at least 183 days a year is the way to avoid state taxes in retirement. And you'll want to make sure you have that all-important library card to prove domicile. Money can't buy you happiness, but for Joe's twin brother, a jag in a five-bedroom house might ease the pain of loneliness. Special thanks to our guest, Scott Ford, co-author with Ron Carson of The Sustainable Edge, 15 minutes a week to a richer entrepreneurial life. To get their book and learn more about being a better, more balanced business person, visit their website at thesustainableedge.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And if you're moved to do so, leave us one. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka, is licensed under a Creative Commons license.